is episode 64 of the Immunology Podcast, Brain Tumor Immunotherapy with Dr. Peter Fetchy. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Peter Fetchy from Duke University on the podcast to talk about his research on brain term immunology and immunotherapy. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first, we would, of course, like to remind our listeners about the upcoming International Union for Immunological Societies Congress, which is taking place in Cape Town, South Africa from November 27 to December 2nd. And of course, we're super excited because we are attending and we'll be covering it live. So visit IUIS2023.org for more information. So Brenda, what do you do on long plane flights to pass the time? On long plane flights? Uh, I like to say I bring a book and I catch up on all the fiction reading I don't have time to. Uh, but I also often browse through the catalog of you know, in onboard entertainment. And, you know, there's always some new movie that it's out in, uh, for some reason, they often have movies that are like in theaters and they have it there. So, but I try, try to read sometimes and, you know, or sleep. I sleep anywhere. So that's something we both have in common. We can power sleep anywhere. But what do you read? Oh, yeah. Science fiction, fantasy, regular fiction, historical fiction? I I don't have a preferred uh, genre, I would say. I, I kind of read what's, the, like I have this list of, of books I heard are good, and I just try to catch up with this in ever growing list. I do like like historical fiction a lot, like uh, you know this. Uh, I don't know if you know this Ken Follett trilogies, and this is I think is a very popular author. Or and I also like uh, science fiction. Um, I really like like everything like classic Isaac Asimov is so good. I should re I just was thinking I should reread Foundation series There's again. Apparently, Apple TV has a Foundation series. It's but I I am sorry Apple TV, but they missed the mark. I mean, visually stunning, beautiful. The story they just they is loosely based on Isaac Asimov's vision. Dune is a much better uh, representation then. I think so. Yeah. No, I I think Foundation is one of it's like I think most of Asimov's uh, work, they just is like iRobot or these things. They just loosely based. I think Isaac Asimov. The, why, the reason why I like him so much is that he's very um, like technical and he really is not a very flashy writing, but he's very consistent and and I think that's the kind of thing that doesn't make really good TV and that's like uh, the things that they uh, get away with. Like they they. Put put aside when they make this this movie slash um, a series adaptations, and I think it's a shame because that's what I really like about Isaac Asimov. Yeah, but then what do you read? Do you do you read on your plane or do you sleep? Oh, I read just... and sleep. Lots of science fiction, fantasy. I'll catch up on Marvel movies I haven't seen yet, but only with permission from my wife because I don't want a movie cheat on her. Oh no! Yeah, you, <clears throat> you watch them together, I guess then. Often, yes. But like, we'll agree. Oh, we both have a plane flight coming up. We'll see this one on the plane on our own. We'll, we'll do that. Uh, Fair. Definitely Fair. getting some reading going on uh, the, 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 my very long plane flight coming up. Mm, yeah, very long. So all the way to South Africa. Yeah, for me, it's going to be just like eight hours. Easy peasy. My second flight is 16 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean... That's how Only it is. The good news is, is it's night, right? So I think I, I go from Philly to Atlanta at like three, and then the flight's at like six something from uh, from Atlanta. So like I'll get on the plane, I'll have dinner, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll watch a movie, read a book, go to bed, get up, have breakfast, do whatever, yeah. maybe get some work done with the Wi-Fi, yeah. have lunch, and get off the plane, and magically it'll be dinner time again. Awesome. Sounds... Sounds fantastic. I'll join you for dinner. So that, that I'm trying to, you know, the positive side here, but it'll be the longest flight I've ever taken for sure. Well, there's first time for everything. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, you will be, aren't you flying business? You'll be fine. I have, I I have no empathy for you. I'm doing one I have no empathy for you. You know what? Oh, boo-hoo, 16 hours, boo-hoo. 
Okay. Stop. You know, I am fighting economy. So please, let's just finish this conversation and get down, you know, to the point of our of our talk today. What have you brought? What science are you going to talk to me well, about today? As an old person, I care about the flu. <laughs> You should. You sh you know, are you getting your shots for this? I already for this got season? my flu vaccine. Thank you very Good. much. So yeah, I discuss flu vaccines with you today because I'm old. Go All for right. it. So this one is in Science Advances coming out the 13th of September. It is chimeric antigen, chimeric hemagglutin split vaccines elicit broadly cross-reactive antibodies and protection against group tube influenza viruses in mice. So they straight up say this is preclinical development studies for clinical trials, which I like. And it's very focused. Uh, by the way, first author is Edouard Puente Massiguier. And last author is Florian Kramer. So usually the flu vaccines don't work particularly well because there's a lot of antigenic drift and change on the hemagglutin head. And so you have to constantly get new vaccinations every year. And most of the big problem, the bugaboo, is the group two, the H3N2. Um, influenza type A, H3N2 is the big bugaboo that we don't do well against. And we do a little better against H1N1. But H3N2 moves around a lot, antigenically. So the idea is that what if you took, they've been trying to make immunization against stalks of the head. Like, so if you think it's a mushroom, you know, the stocky part of the mushroom, but it hasn't been working as well, generally speaking. They just haven't been able to get good antigenic response. Having the antibodies have good access there has been a problem, so on and so forth. So this group kind of figured out that you can take a non-human head that's never been exposed in humans, exotic heads of influenza, attach it to the stalk of a human head, of, of that human head and then do two variations, right? So you're gonna have wild type flu exposure, which they replicate with a vaccination, followed by a specific head, in this case, CH15 slash three, and then a second one that's different, CH4 slash three, that's why it's split. So right, two different ones in series, and then they challenge. And these mice do wildly well with this. So the paper goes through, they look at live attenuated virus, which has this weird mutant thing. So I was like, uh-oh, they just made a mutant like non-human head part with stock thing. What are they doing here? Well, they find the live attenuated virus doesn't work very well anyways, and then it activated. So I'm like, thank God they're going inactivated. And then they also find, they do some adjuvant testing and find that um, actually the adjuvant of uh, the CPG 1018, which is a CPG adjuvant for TLR9, right? Not aluminum adjuvant, but this one works really well. And so they do, a, this paper goes through a whole series there's a bunch of challenge trials, but in the end, they show that these two split vaccines that have this hybrid head that's not what you see in people, but the stock in people with two different types of stocks that are very conserved, provides very robust protection, 100% survival rates compared to the mice dying across multiple syngenic flu strains and then non-syngenic. So then they take other H3N2s that are pretty good antigenic drift and hit the mice with those and they do great. So it's providing a broad, robust vaccination you may not have to repeat every year. And so now they're going to go in the clinic. But then this response is against epitopes in the stock. Correct. And they get to that by having these non-human heads and non-mouse heads, right, that like our immune systems don't seem to care about. And so you get good antibodies against the stock because I think how it's working. And they do it with oh. a split approach, right? Oh, okay. I thought of the opposite. I thought it might have been that because it's uh, definitely not a head that you already have a, an immune response against, and therefore it might be hard to like if you have a something that is similar to a previously uh, encountered virus, and maybe it's not as immunogenic, and then you have something completely new. Then the whole thing is no, very immunogenic. It's a, it's a stock, and they take other humans with other parts of the same, you know, stock H three and it works great. Okay. So map the response. It's H. It's stock and neuro and neuroamidine specific cellular immune responses. Neuroamidase. But they did. All right. They did great. I mean, like it really seems to work, and they're going to go into people. And okay. So and how? So they think that this might help uh, reduce a need for universal robust influenza vaccination. 
All right. It's pretty good. So not every year getting something that only kind of works. Right. Because the stocks are less variable. So you're Correct. less likely to have them different from one year to another. And this works across variable stocks better. The head right. mutates really affects the ability of antibodies to bind in a way that even small stock mutations don't seem to do. All right. That's very that's very interesting, very promising. And you said this is a uh, inactivated virus. So there's actually a, a, no, an inactivated virus. No, they went the fully inactivated. Um, okay. A fully inactivated virus. It's not like um, a recombinant uh, vaccine. They looked at live attenuated. Then they went to fully inactivated. All right. Okay. Uh, we'll see what, what if they do are doing clinical trials, how they work out. I think always having better protection for influenza is definitely a good thing. Yeah. No, I'm All right. very, I was pleased. Okay. So uh, continuing on the subject of being old and having to take care of yourself. Uh, I'm just kidding. Actually, this is not about being old. This is about, but I guess a way of, you know, Helping yourself get to old age in good shape is doing exercise. I think we all know that. You know this. We know this. You're, you know, you do your, you do your uh, martial arts. I know that you take care get of up yourself. Early in the morning and do jujitsu and go to the gym when I can and all that good stuff. Yep. Very good. Then you're doing the right thing. And there's another paper, yet another paper that tells you a different mechanism by which this, uh, uh, for which this is a good idea. So, um. This in this paper, so the paper is titled "Regulatory T cells require L6 receptor alpha signaling to control skeletal muscle function and regeneration." First authors Mike Becker and Zini uh, Yosef. Uh, last author Caroline Daniel at the Helmholtz Institute for uh, Diabetes Research, um, and in Munich. And so in this paper, they are looking into what happens with regulatory T cells upon um, exercise and how they interact with the muscles. That's very wide. Let me let me kind of explain a little bit. So we know we know that uh, of course regulatory T cells they find they are found in several non-lymphoid tissues all over the place, and they uh, more and more we understand that their function is critical to maintain not only prevent inflammation, uh, which is kind of the logical thing, but also just to preserve homeostasis. And it looks like there's many, um, many kind of um, loops and many uh, signaling pathways that depend on T-Rex being there and, and, and the tissues getting certain signals and that helps their function. So in this case, they're looking into the role of T-Rex to live in skeletal muscle um, and particularly what are certain signaling pathways that seem to be critical for their function in the muscle. So um, one of the things, so T-Rex in muscle are known to be important for uh, recovering from uh, some uh, damage or um, we, we see it from, from several types of muscle, not only skeletal muscle, also car cardiac muscle. And T-Rex are fundamental in order to prevent inflammation and to recover from injury. Uh, T-Rex in the muscle uh, express, uh, amongst other things, uh, one of the characteristics that they express high levels of amphiregulin, which is a, a protein that is related to the epidemial growth factor family. And that the uh, uh, that the receptor is expressed in many immune cells, but also in cells within the muscle that are part of the muscle. And this is important. And this expression is important for T-Rex that live in the muscle to prevent inflammation there. And um, also um, another another characteristic of muscle is the high expression of IL six. So muscle cells express IL six, and it's. No, a known uh, phenomenon that happens after exercise or also muscle injury um, and that um, is is part of the natural uh, cycle of, of muscle regeneration is the expression of IL-6. And also when I started reading this paper, I was thinking IL-6, I was thinking IL-6, that's what I added to my cultures to make like TH17 cells. So what does IL-6, how is that good for regulatory diesels? 
And actually in this paper, they show that IL-6 signaling, or at least the IL-6 receptor alpha signaling in T-cell, in T-rex, uh, or in T-cells is uh, crucial for this, uh, the presence and the, and the function of the regulatory T-cells in muscle. So they have these animal models in which they study, they use kind of different mouse models that affect muscle health in different ways to show that uh, T-rex are present in muscle and they expand and they uh, upon certain uh, stimuli. And they have three different ways. So they either look into what happens after mice are given, you know, a wheel to run until so they exercise voluntarily. Uh, they look at what happened also in, in certain situations, muscle injury. And they show that in the case, for example, when they start with, with exercise, that exercise where they have this mice like four weeks, they give them a little uh, wheel and the mice run and they're happy and they're exercising. And when they compare it to mice that have not been given this, they show that they actually have an increased amount of regulatory diesel, foxy positive cells in their muscle. And this is interesting because this uh, increase happens uh, is with only about four weeks of exercise. And even if the mice all after that have four weeks of non-exercise, this population still stays in the muscle. So this kind of a, has a relatively stable population that's generated upon uh, physical activity and, and function of this muscle. and they show that these regulatory T cells, they are in fact expressing um, certainly this, this, this tissue residence, mar this muscle resident markers, this uh, amphiregulin, uh, and that they are also uh, expressing um, another another different marker. So they are so they're high positive for KX67, so they are proliferating in the muscle, um, and that the they are also uh, expressing uh, ST2 which is a receptor for IL-33, which is also has been associated with Treg function in, in non-lymphoid uh, tissues. And what I thought was very interesting is that um, another molecule that they express is the IL-6 receptor alpha. And they show, so in this, so they, they look into mice, there are knockout for IL-6, um, uh, and they show that this negatively affects the activation and the residence of this T-Rex in the muscle. And not only that, but this absence of T-Rex is also correlated with a reduction of, of, ma of, of, of muscle strength. And this kind of, kind of negatively affects the, the performance of the muscle. And this is just regular mice just living. If they don't have IL-6 in their, in, their, uh, in, in their muscle fibers don't make IL-6, they have less T-Rex there. They have this T-Rex that have this specific markers of, of, of muscle residence, and this negatively affects the strength and the, and the health of the muscle. Also, they have these models of muscle injury, and they also show that the absence of IL-6 and of, uh, reduces T-Rex, and this absence of T-Rex presumably is related to the reduction in the uh, recovery of the muscle. Uh, and then they have, so they they show um, if they have a, a IL-6 receptor knockout specific for T-cells, so a conditional T-cell uh, IL-6 receptor uh, alpha knockout, again, this affects then the T-rex the don't uh, expand or they don't uh, acquire this functional maturation that uh, implies exp the expression of amphiregulin ST2 and this, and this EGFR signaling. So in principle, they show that they, 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 they come with this model in which IL-6 expression by the muscle, either through uh, exercise or as a consequence of, of, of tissue damage, it's really important to uh, instruct regulatory T-cells in the muscle that then provide support for regeneration and, and, and kind of muscle strength in general. And what I thought was very interesting is that they show that um, through antibodies, that are uh, aimed at uh, IL-6 receptor alpha, which, for example, tocilizumab, which is used for uh, many uh, clinical uh, functions, particularly for preventing um, over uh, for preventing cytokine storms and things like that. That long-term uh, application of this IL-6 receptor alpha can, uh, uh, inhibitors can actually result in a reduction of muscle strength and it can negatively affect 
the the uh, development of muscle and this they they think that they has to do with the reduction of t-reg de uh, development in the muscle and that that is this is the reason why you see that also in patients that receive uh, uh, antibodies just as such as tocilizumab uh, the long term one of the things that they observe is lo muscle uh, loss uh, as a consequence of treatment so yeah so again t-rex saving the day also in your muscles exercise is muscle injury you just get bigger muscles when you're done with it so it yeah probably makes sense it ties all into regeneration yeah um so i thought it was just really cool i mean i know exercise is good for you but i also now know it's good for my t-rex so does that mean you're going to exercise more because of the t-rex I mean, I think I'm exercising fine. So, but I now I know what's going on in there. So I'm gonna just give them some 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 uh, words of encouragement. T reg pep top, you can do it. You can do it. I can Your do smiles. it. I can do it. <laughs> so yeah, what you got? I, I, I'm back to viruses again. Uh, <sighs> it was it was a viral week for me. It's fighting off a cold too. So <laughs> this one's in Nature. It's an accelerated article preview. But, but just a caveat here, it was received the 27th of January, 2023, and accepted the 15th of September, 2023. So accelerated means different things to different people. It is a molnupiravir associated mutational signature in global SARS-CoV-2 genomes. First author is Theo Sanderson, last author is Christopher Weiss. This definitely made the uh, social media rounds a little bit. Uh, so molpiravir, or uh, mol, as I will call it in this, because I'm not going to say that many syllables over and over again, it is an antiviral used for um, SARS-CoV-2, not approved in every country, not used evenly in every country where it was approved. So different countries like give it to everyone, regardless of symptoms, if you're in a nursing home. Other countries are like only give it to old people. Other people are like, eh, we don't want to use it at all. So there's actually what we call a natural experiment going on in different parts of the world where you have known usage approval patterns plus chart data showing who was using the drug. What the authors did is they looked at genetic drift over time from sequencing in association with drug use. Um, the way this drug works, it's essentially an anti-metabolite um, that gets incorporated in and it causes G to A and A to C specific mutations because of what it triggers it to look like uh, in two different ways, depending on a forward versus reverse transcription. So it has a very unique mutation signature based on how it functions, these G to A and C to T mutations. And they find that the proportion of those appear almost exclusively in sequences from 2022 after the introduction of the treatment. So you don't see this normal these types of mutations before the drug is induced. The drug is known to induce this mechanistically. And then they be able to map this out elegantly and see a giant spike in these numbers of mutations in the virus after its introduction. They can control for population that was exposed to it, whether that's country or age group or what have you. And they see the pattern holds over and over and over and over again that this drug induced very specific mutations in the virus. Now, what does that mean? Uh, they don't know. Like, there, there's not anything like all these mutations are specifically bad or good, right? Remember, a lot of them kill the virus, right? So anything escapes has to be able to have mutations tolerable for it to survive. Um, but they are some of the recent spike mutations that have occurred in variants of concern. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, yeah. So it caused mutations. There you go. So the paper is pretty short. It's a four-page paper, but not counting the figures. Yeah, but that's just so imply nine that... months to come out after it was submitted. So I don't know what the what. Well, I mean, it's it sounds to be very controversial because it kind of is. Aren't they saying that we brought this on ourselves by using this kind of therapies? 
Is that a, is that a correct interpretation of this? We did it to ourselves, Brenda. Just like when we don't exercise, we do that to ourselves too. I mean, I know uh, I I would have thought from the start that this was a bad idea. The whole why why are we even treating them like this? Like are we trying to make a deadly new strain or what? They were trying to use an antiviral for people who are sick. But then they use the prophy. I mean, antivirals kind of do this normally, right? Like most antivirals affect mutations and replicative strains. This just one has a specific pattern to it that they were able. And the question is efficacy, right? So if this prevented everyone from dying, who got it, maybe it's worth it. But it didn't. So the efficacy after post-talk analysis was much less. And that's where like, oh, maybe this wasn't worth it. Yeah. But because if you have some of the antiviral that, for example, are um, targeting the polymerase, things like that, do they all work like this? Do they all? They, they don't necessarily. They maybe jam the, the polymerase or do they always work by inducing mutations? There are different ones that do different things. But one of the common ways to do an antiviral is an anti-metabolite that is specifically functional in viruses because of their unique structure, mm -hmm. right? So you can make an anti-metabolite that, that gets incorporated into viral genetic material that doesn't get incorporated into human genetic material. Yeah. Because of the different, yeah. you know, RNA and DNA polymerases. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's, it's a common strategy because of um, that uniqueness, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it, it's how, of course, you know, hindsight 2020, hindsight, hindsight 2020, you always know after the fact, but I don't know. I feel like, yeah, this was a risky approach. And now that we know that it was not that much that beneficial, it feels like a uh, probably mis misjudgment to have relied so much on this and then potentially given rise to all of this uh, new uh, uh, strains going around the world. Yeah. And I think that's probably why it got so delayed. I think there was a lot of contra controversy with this, like a lot of people were not very happy about this being published, probably, or like you had to be very sure about the numbers before publishing this that could uh, hard, gonna bring a lot of criticism in this day and age. Yeah, well, maybe that's why it took so long. But I would have rather had this data in January versus September. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that sometimes, I think also early in the pandemic, earlier, there were a lot of like preprints and non non properly revised data that were um, published, then were shown to be fault, faulty or flawed analyses. And, but then the damage was done. So I guess that if you're criticizing a very critical type of, of therapy, you have to be very sure before opening the floodgates. In any case, um, let's see. I asked, I assume that then probably is going to be less used from now on. But well, on a different tone or moving to a different area here, I have a story that I think you'd like because it has to do with microbiome. Boy. Yay. That's two back and almost back to back. I'm excited here. Yeah. So this um, paper uh, published in Science Immunology uh, is called Laboratory, Laboratory Mice with a Wild Microbiota Generate Strong Allergic Immune Responses. First authors, Junji Ma and Egon Urgard. Uh, from the last authors are Suzanne Nilen, Stefan Roshart, and Jonathan Coquet. I'm not sure um, where this person is from. Uh, they are from, well, the um, uh, Karolinska uh, Institute and also from the University of Copenhagen as well um, and the uh, University of Erlangen. And in this study, they, they're a little bit cheeky about it. I, I kind of like it. They're looking into some assumptions about this whole um, hygiene uh, theory uh, that we uh, have kind of developed 
uh, in, in recent time, or maybe not so recent, but this idea that um, there are differences in the incidence of allergic, um, the, 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 the increase in allergic uh, uh, diseases that we see in developed countries is associated with the lack of like micro, like microbiota or the reduced exposure to uh, microbiota or like viruses and fungi and things like that, and particularly of, you know, diseases in general. Um, and it is widely accepted that, especially in the 20th century, uh, as many of industrialized countries really cleaned up their uh, their act uh, kind of literally and the societies became a lot less exposed to disease, transmittable diseases and uh, in general uh, all types of uh, of antigens in the environment that there has been an increase in the incidence of allergic re uh, diseases in children and in adults in general and that in principle um, it is not clear what is the reason for this but there is many theories that suggest that because we are less exposed to uh, different or microorganisms and because these microorganisms are very important for teaching our immune system and helping it develop normally, the absence of such uh, micro, uh, microorganisms can result in overreactive immune systems and that this associates with diseases or this could cause diseases such as asthma, and other types of inflammatory uh, kind of allergic diseases. Uh, there are some mouse models, some mouse studies, uh, which compared uh, mice grown in uh, without any, so kind of this um, microbiota-free mice uh, in comparison to the regular housing condition, which is this kind of spe specific pathogen-free uh, mice. And that there is... Initial studies suggest that these mice that are grown in completely sterile environments actually have exacerbated allergic responses when then later on in their life they are exposed to allergens or, or, or allergic uh, or microbes that generate allergy. And so it is always hard to compare often because, you know, the a complete absence of the kind of different levels. There's the absence of any type of, micro, of microbes. There is this pathogen-free condition, which you don't have, only have kind of commensal microbiota or mostly harmless microbiota that in principle is helping kind of develop your immune system a little bit. And then you have kind of the wild type situation. You have mice in the wild that are get sick and they have, you know, strong reactions against actual pathogens. And so what they did in this in the study is that they compared what they called uh, wildling, wildling mice, in which it is mice of the same uh, black six uh, uh, genetic background, but that they have been rewilded with natural uh, microbiota, including pathogenic strains. And this mice kind of developed the idea is that they develop an immune system or like a, a principle, a microbiome and hopefully immune system that is very comparable to those of actual mice in the actual wild. And they compare it and say, well, okay, if we think that uh, the absence of micro microbes is it's bad and exacerbates allergic responses, uh, and we think that maybe mice in this pathogen-free conditions are not, are not exposed to the real breath uh, of a kind of microbes that you can be exposed to in your lifetime, maybe these wildling mice actually have an even better uh, response to allergens and they actually have, are even better protected against allergic disease. Uh, and the funny thing is that they find kind of the opposite. And I like this because you now there's also a couple of, of tweets about it. It's like, this is the end of hygiene theory, uh, maybe a little bit exaggerated, but um, basically what they find is that these mice, they can actually, you know, reconstitute a very diverse microbiome. They have not only bacteria, but also fungi, also, um, which are usually absent in pathogen-free mice, uh, viruses, things like that. They have a um, much more diverse microbiome. And they show that, in fact, this does not reduce, uh, and, and in fact, it increases the uh, differentiation of TH2 
cells in particular, and they look a lot into kind of an asthma model. So particularly in the lungs of mice that are, have been uh, rewilded and they have, they have this really very diverse uh, microbiome. Um, they, they show that um, they also have some uh, increases in regulatory T cells that kind of accompany this increase in Th1 cells. Uh, and that they actually respond to many, of course, they are responsive to many uh, um, bacterial antigens in a, in a TCR-dependent manner. Um, and in principle, um, they, 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 produce, they also produce more IL-10, probably as a way of keeping the, the homeostasis when you have also more than more allergic reactions. But in principle, they're not protected against allergic disease compared to pathogen-free mice. And they do a lot of different analyses. They also, so they, they show that they have, in fact, more, a larger number of Th2 cells. Those are kind of GATA3 positive cells uh, that, are that are expressing uh, IL-13. Um, they, uh, and they show that there's, uh, no real difference in other other, other uh, important substances such as ILC, ILC2s, um, and they're quite comparable um, in, in, in both cases. It's really a TH2-mediated uh, uh, situation. And they, they do some allergy kind of mock experiments or like kind of modeling experiments in which they have this house, house dust mite, which is a very allergenic, a kind of, uh, of organism, and they show that in fact uh, these wildling mice have stronger allergic reactions in their lungs compared to the pathogen-free mice. So again, there's no benefit of having been infected with actual pathogenic strains uh, at all. And and actually, and they they make the point that in fact many times. Uh, respiratory diseases, just viruses, actually, you know, damage the tissue and increase the inflammation and, 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 and make the mice, make organisms more sensitive to, to um, further uh, inflammation. So they do a lot of, of, of studies, but in general, I think that's kind of the take-home message. And I know that it's a little bit out of, kind of, in, uh, kind of, feels a little bit out of, uh, in the air. I, I, but I, I think it really does um, a good job trying to change a little bit the discussion because often there's a lot of studies, uh, these this studies in pathogen, in kind of micro and, and um, uh, yeah, this uh, sterile mice um, suggested that maybe there was a benefit to having a, a large microbiota. And we know that it is definitely beneficial having nothing it's it, it's not good for the development of your immune system but there's no need to get like there's no need to have pathogenic uh microbiota that doesn't help so you don't need to um there's not necessarily the idea that a very and, and this data suggests that you don't need the the larger like that at some point the biodiversity of the microbiota might not necessarily be uh a huge requirement in order for you to develop a functional immune system and that having a more diverse microbiota will not, at least in this models, protect you from allergy. And therefore, the in the case, if you move this to the human situation, that the idea that because we're not getting sick anymore, we're not exposed to pathogenic diseases, that reduces our ability to uh, prevent allergy or, or reduces our uh, or increases our, the incidence of allergy might not be the case, at least if you're based on this model. Interesting. I mean, it, this seems to be very allergic lung allergy, though, and I wonder if that's the same as skin or or uh, gut with IBD and other things. Like the antibiotic linkage there is pretty strong, and I wonder lungs are tended not. I mean, there's there's bacteria there, right? We breathe them in and out, but it tends yeah. to be a different level of tolerance and need to tolerate as opposed to intestine and skin. And so I'm wondering if that may be part of the difference as well. Yeah. Um, I guess in this case, they want to make the point for like asthma. And I think they, they focus a lot on, on, on uh, allergic reactions in the, in the airways, uh, which, um, we know for a fact that it have been increased also. Um, and 
they also kind of they want to make the point of it is the importance that they their model because they are doing this this widening from from the mice are kind of caught they're uh, grown like this for many for several generations so that you don't expose the mice once they're adults they they grow and they get exposed you know during uh, birth uh, from their mothers uh, through the whole their whole early childhood and um, and I think that also it's yeah, it's important to that this model kind of differentiates from other studies in which maybe mice are colonized after the fact also. Um, but so I guess it's really, and also I guess it depends on, on, on the system that you're looking into. They don't, they don't really address other kind of allergies in different organs. Um, but I wonder. Well, we could talk about algae more. But we're going to be talking about brain tumor and brain immunology here in a second with Dr. Peter Fetchy at Duke University. Uh, but before we get to that, this week, like, we'd like to remind our listeners about Neural Cell News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Neural Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in neural cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with Neural Cell News. Subscribe for free at NeuralCellNews.com. Now for our second part of the show, we have, of course, a guest with us. Joining us is Dr. Peter Fetchy. He is professor of neurosurgery and the director of the Duke Center for Brain and Spine Metastases. He's a neurosurgeon, and his research uh, centers on around brain tumor immunology and immunotherapy. And we actually uh, covered one of the recent papers from his lab here at the Immunology Podcast discussing what happens when tumors don't express MHC1 anymore. Uh, so we're very excited to have him on the show. Thank you, Dr. Fetchy, for joining us. That's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. All right. Brenda, do you want to go first this time, or do you want me to fire away with, with brain tumor? I think I'll start. Go for I it. I think I'll start. No, I think... Uh, of course, you know, brain tumors is probably one of the scariest things you can say. I think that's just the, the, the thought of having one uh, is, 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 is very, um, I want to think, think of a synonym of scary, but, you know, my English is not working now. Terrifying, but yeah. Terrifying, that's that's the word. And and oftentimes it's, it's a really hard tumor to treat. So I was always thinking maybe you can give us a quick uh, overview uh, of what are the kind of, of of tumors that you and you you see in your clinic and in your research, and how far are we on treating these tumors? Yeah, great question. I mean, there at the end of the day, there really are a lot of varieties or you know flavors of brain tumor. Uh, they're of course run the gamut from reasonably benign to fairly malignant. But I think the awful one that most people think about when you conjure the term and image of brain tumors, glioblastoma, uh, and that's really the awful one. Uh, it still remains pretty much universally fatal, and most of the advances we've made are just in extending survival or reducing recurrence. Um, and there's a pretty standard of care that involves kind of a mixture of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Um, but uh, experimental therapies are, of course, uh, all the rage here because of our lack of success with standard of care. And so that's really where the immunotherapy side of things comes in. Hasn't been tremendously successful to date, but there have been some small victories. And our group really focuses on trying to understand what the limitations of those victories are so that we can do a better job, uh, per se. So uh, when I think brain cancer, I think about the, the metastases in particular. I mean, one, obviously, I also a physician. I respect you neurosurgeons for being able to do surgery in a brain. So... I know that's a big part of it, and a, a large difficulty is removing the tumor. But then there's the metastases, and I think about that because I lost a, a cousin of mine to glioblastoma. She was only in her 20s, um, and it you know looked like it was being treated, went away. A month after treatment stopped, had neurological symptoms, massive recurrence, done. Yeah, and you know, ironically, the glioblastomas don't metastasize. They really just kind of come back locally in that spot. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're really invasive. Uh, back in the 1920s, there was a neurosurgeon who had the bright idea that the whole problem is you just, we just don't take out enough, you know, and so why don't we just take out half the brain in people? Uh, and, uh, and so they did that. Obviously, it was devastating to patients, but they also then tended to then die from the cancer anyway. 
So we now know that that's not the trick. Um, and that's why, you know, the surgeons play a limited role here of getting it out. But the real goal is to try to, to go after what's residual that we can't see even on the MRIs uh, after we're done in there. Uh, and, and you have to be able to attack really across, across and throughout the brain. And so obviously radiation, although it goes beyond the surgery, doesn't quite tackle all of that. And the brain mets are uh, brain metastases in general are really a growing, um, a very, very growing uh, kind of field. Because ironically, as we've gotten better at treating cancer and people survive longer, they survive longer to have kind of late sequelae of cancer, i.e. to develop metastases to like the brain, spine, et cetera. So even though we've, we're, we're prolonging survival, the rate of brain metastases is actually increasing. Um, surgically, they're a lot easier because they don't look like the brain. Uh, the tumors that start in the brain are a little bit tougher to distinguish. But ultimately, all these things are big problems for us in the immunotherapy field. So. So when it comes to immunotherapy uh, in the brain or for brain, either for brain tumors or maybe even for brain metastases of other kinds of tumors, where are we standing on that side? Brain metastases, actually, there have been some successes, uh, particularly melanoma, perhaps not surprisingly, as that's oftentimes the kind of classic immunogenic cancer uh, where I think probably the largest successes with immunotherapy have been to date. Uh, and the combination of IPI and NEVO, ipilimumab and nivolumab, which are essentially anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1, of course, that combination has been quite effective in the brain, even against melanoma brain metastases. I think the published paper, there's a New England paper a bunch of years ago, the, the complete response rate is about 26% with that combination, even in melanoma brain metastases. And there's, I think, a 57% overall response rate. So that those are pretty good numbers compared to what we're used to thinking about there. I mean, I when I was training, you know, melanoma brain metastases was kind of a three-month survival, and that's it. Now we can cure one out of four people, right? So that's really amazing. Um, uh, there's been some successes in lung and other cancers uh, uh, that, that go to the brain uh, with immunotherapy. Uh, for whatever reason, metastases are a bit easier to treat than glioblastoma, uh, where there's been really less success, unfortunately, to date. Um, but I think we're doing a good job of understanding what some of those limitations are now. Some of the the differences with with primary brain cancer and immunotherapy have to do with the immune privileged nature of the brain that makes it harder or or you know too much immune activation. The brain is even more lethal than cancer. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of great points in there. So first off, the brain, for evolutionary reasons that we all probably understand. Uh, does a pretty good job of limiting access of things that you don't really want in there. Uh, the joke I say is, you know, the brain is decidedly intolerant of guns, knives, and drugs, and things like that. And so it, it tends to keep drugs out. Um, and it also tends to keep the immune system out to some degree, not as an absolute, it's not a hermetic seal, but it's tougher to get drugs in there. Um, uh, and you want it to be that way for obvious reasons in general. But some of the things that we're discovering actually, which is applicable to both glioblastoma and brain mets, is that the brain harbors some really interesting mechanisms for actually shutting down systemic immune responses, not just locally. Uh, and there are inflammatory triggers in the CNS, the central nervous system, that uh, trigger some mechanisms that really uh, start a cascade of events to kind of limit uh, immune activity globally in people. And I won't go into all those details and a lot of it's stuff that we're still working on, but even things that we published five or six years ago now, or, you know, T cells become sequestered in the bone marrow uh, as soon as you have a tumor in the brain, whatever type of tumor it is, we see the same thing with things like stroke and other CNS pathologies. So uh, yes, there's definitely a select or an evolutionary pressure for the brain to kind of protect itself from immune responses. Uh, and if you do have too much of that, it really can be devastating for folks. Uh, too much immune response, that is, of course. Um, so when we're thinking of this immune privilege in the brain and how this affects the kind of immune responses, we hear a lot about the microenvironment of the tumor and how the tumor often hij hijacks uh, cells in the tissue where it's found. So what do we understand about, I know, I know that, you know, uh, microglia and the so which would be kind of the macrophage of the tumor, like the immune cell of the tumor. How do they affect the microenvironment around a, uh, for example, the uh, uh, glioblastoma? Yeah, hundred um, percent. These tumors really co-opt 
the cells that are already there, as well as any cells that make their way there. And if you look in tumors of the brain, specifically, whether those are METs or gliomas, you'll find that they have a very, very large myeloid contingent uh, compared to, say, their peripheral counterparts. Uh, part of that, of course, is due to the fact that microglia are myeloid cells and are all about. Uh, but even the macrophage infiltration, you know, the hematopoietic infiltration is heavily myeloid uh, and less lymphocytic. And we have some interesting data that we've been looking at that shows that tumors and other processes in the brain tend to skew hematopoiesis towards myelopoiesis. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, you have these cells that are there like microglia, as you mentioned. Uh, and I think we all think of myeloid cells as being potentially immunosuppressive, very adaptive. They can kind of go one way or another. Uh, and certainly the tumors do a particularly good job of pushing them into a way that's counterproductive for us and, and productive and adaptive for the tumor. So do you think that then one of the keys to fixing this problem of immunotherapy in the brain is going to be uh, myeloid cell immunotherapies, so to speak, something that's much more geared towards that function and turning off instead of PD-1 processes, MDSC, or, or pick, pick your myeloid suppressive acronym of the month, and that's going to be where the secret sauce is? I think there's going to be a lot of secret sauce in reprogramming the myeloid compartment uh, and the myeloid infiltration, because uh, to be honest, the myeloid contingent there also does a lot to limit the lymphocytic response, which is what ultimately you do want. Uh, we have a lot of data coming out of our group that it's actually the hematopoietic APC, and it's actually a paper that's out uh, at review right now, but we're not the only ones to kind of highlight this, is that it's probably the, the myeloid cells that are more responsible for eliciting things like T-cell exhaustion in the TME than actually the tumor cells themselves, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, understanding what the interactions are between myeloid cells and T-cells in, the, in the, uh, uh, in the tumor microenvironment that drive exhaustion, for instance, uh, will be important because, of course, exhaustion is going to be limiting for things like immune checkpoint blockade, right? Um, and yes, the problem here is there's, you know, the flavor of the month, you know, is it MDSCs, is M1, M2 real, you know, all these kinds of things. But regardless of where you stand on what the acronyms mean and, and whether these things totally exist, we certainly understand that we can shift those cells into something more productive for the immune response uh, for their own targeting of tumors, and then also for the way they impact things like T cells and dendritic cells, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, maybe moving a little bit away from the, the myeloid cells in the brain, but talking about the T cells. And I just wanted to reference to this latest uh, publication and from your group that we discussed here. But for those who missed that episode of the podcast, I thought it was really interesting how you look into what happens when uh, you don't have MHC1 expression of 2% antigen. And this is a very common uh, way of of innovation by several types of uh, types of tumors, um, but maybe couldn't you just quickly walk us through this particular study and what you think it it means in terms of of understanding of this of this particular uh, cancer type? Sure, I think you know you hit the nail on the head with this kind of traditional model of immunoscape for tumors, which is that uh, they can downregulate MHC one and in theory kind of cloak themselves from the immune system. Uh, and that's been a long accepted model, right? As has been the long accepted model that T cells must see antigen in the context of MHC1 in order to kill, right? That goes all the way back to probably, you know, the 1950s, even in, in cancer, uh, the Burnett and Thomas and all that uh, immunosurveillance models, et cetera. It turns out that model is probably not totally accurate. Um, and, uh, and actually, it turns out the good news is that tumors downregulating MHC may not be the uh, a boon for tumors that we thought uh, it was. So uh, really our finding came when we started to, we had built a, a tumor that lacked class one because we actually were using that to study exhaustion, to talk, you know, talking about those things that we were just discussing, you know, trying to prove where the exhaustion signals came from. Uh, and I don't know why we got the bright idea to try to see what the survival would be uh, for those tumors with immunotherapy, but for some reason we just plugged, plugged that in. And shockingly, the, uh, the immunotherapies worked almost better than when the tumors had class one. And so, of course, we said, well, that must be NK cells, right? What else could it be? And we depleted NK cells, and uh, it was still there. The, the, the mice survived just, just fine. And we've eventually got around to depleting CD8 T cells, and it all went away. 
And we said, well, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But uh, I have this really bright grad student uh, in the lab, Emily Lerner, and she's an MD-PhD student. And she was pretty persistent at, at we're going to unlock this mechanism. Uh, and so we went after it. And we really came to understand that antigen really actually is still important, but it's important at the priming stage. So the shortest version of this story that I can tell for everyone so that we don't lose any audience here is that basically uh, T cells need to be activated in uh, an antigen specific fashion. And that can be by anything, myeloid cells, dendritic cells, you know, macrophage, whatever. Um, but once adaptively primed, uh, they can kill in an antigen and MHC indiscriminate fashion, essentially an innate killing mechanism. And what we eventually understood was that that is actually because T cells do have NKG2D on their surface, even non-NK T cells. And tumors certainly upregulate NKG2D ligands. And, and what's even better is that those ligands come up when you give them things like radiation, et cetera, and stress the cells. Uh, and they're particularly present on tumors that have downregulated MHC. Uh, and so this remains an avenue of killing very much available to us. And we showed that that's exactly what's happening. Uh, and it's really interesting because that means that once a T cell is activated, it's a killing machine and can kill anything that has an NKG2D ligand on its surface, regardless of antigen, which does make you worried for specificity. Um, but you know, it turns out those ligands are really mostly present on the tumor and not on necessarily other cells in the microenvironment. Uh, and uh, so that's how you maintain a modicum of tumor specificity. But it's a very interesting mechanism, and it lends itself there, of course, to a variety of translational therapies that we can build off of that. So, so how far are you from trials on this type of thing? Um, <clears throat> Not because we're not advanced in the technologies we're building off of this, but I think more so because getting to trial just takes a long time period. Uh, you know, I, I think we we have therapies that we've built in uh, off of this, and they're uh, I, I don't think I'm quite permitted to discuss them yet uh, for all the you know legal hubbub, you know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, they are quite effective, and uh, at least in our hands so far, uh, we haven't trialed them in patients, of course. But it takes a long time to get something from concept and and in vivo testing in mice to across the line and you know uh, testing in clinical trials, INDs, things like that. So my guess is we're a few years away yet, but uh, hopefully not too far. Let's hope. I, I just wanted to make one ask one question regarding this 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 paper because. Uh, in your immune therapy, you're doing a, a dual uh, treatment with anti-PD-1 and then also 4-1-BB agonists. And I wanted to ask, because I don't know, I mean, that's kind of not the most traditional type of immunotherapy. Um, what motivated you to use this particular combination? Uh, the poor man's answer is because it works. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the problem is some of these really aggressive mouse models of glioblastoma we have are just uh, the wrong term here is completely immune to anti-PD-1. What I really should say is completely non-responsive uh, to anti-PD-1. And, uh, and it's, you know, spitting into the wind. And so uh, we, we find that because T cells are so poor in number and activation status in these tumors uh, and these mice, much like their human counterparts, we need a little extra boost. Uh, and so the 4-MBB kind of acts as that activation, if you will, the stepping on the gas and the anti-PD-1 acts like kind of a removal of the brakes. Uh, so we kind of need to take our foot off the brake and step on the gas to get a reasonable response. And then we we find that um, uh, that these, these mechanisms are enhanced uh, in the paper, of course, when we, uh, even in the absence of class one. But the fact of the matter is that the, the 4-MBB agonism is not necessary for this mechanism. This is a bit more global. Uh, it's just that this was just the model of immunotherapy we used because we wanted to show that we could improve the response. So. so what's next then? Besides trials we can't talk about, where do you see it moving to in terms of treatment regimes or next steps in research to get to that that trial or or where have you? Where's the path? Well, some things that are published for sure uh, are people are essentially making CAR T cells with NKG2D on them, right? Um, and at the very least... And when you think about it, what you're really saying is that we can bypass uh, uh, antigenic heterogeneity 
because we're not really dependent upon antigen here any longer. We just need to have this ligand present and to some degree, whether MHC and antigen are present or not. Uh, so at the very least, arming our immunotherapies with like the CAR T cells that are out there uh, with NKG2D allows you another mechanism that either provides you a fairly ubiquitous quote unquote antigen, albeit it's not an antigen to target, or uh, permits you the capacity um, uh, to have essentially a, a backup mechanism, right, to go after those cells that have successfully downregulated class one. Uh, now we have a way of availing ourselves of the Achilles heel there uh, and still permitting us the capacity to target. So I think people will come up with some very clever ideas off of that model. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll be one of those groups, hopefully, but well, we won't be the only ones for sure. That is, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's such a, such a complicated, well, cancer in general is complicated, but I think particularly, we, we, we said it already, but, uh, I hope that, that we can really find uh, new avenues to, to reach these tumors in particular. And so I just want to ask you one more thing regarding kind of the immunology of the brain. You know, so we have, and you briefly touched upon it, but I would like maybe to elaborate a little bit more about what do we know about the level of uh, the ways that the immune system can reach the brain. So you mentioned that it is hard, and we know we have had other guests in our podcast that discuss the brain in the situation of like uh, traumatic hand injury, and we know that. But how is how can because we do find some T cells when we see a brain tumor. So how do they? get there how what what are the what how what do we understand about what really is the immune uh, privilege of the brain yeah uh i will try to make this not too long-winded an answer um you know i think the brain isn't truly immune privileged really uh, i think people coin all different terms for it i think immunologically distinct is a good one that i like um and t cells certainly do get into the brain uh, there and particularly activated t cells can traffic reasonably well. And even though there's the blood-brain barrier and blood tumor barrier, a lot of these tumors have fairly leaky, crappy vessels inside of them. And so uh, things are able, and when you think about a tumor lighting up on an MRI scan, because we give a contrast dye, that dye is reflecting those leaky vessels and is getting into the tumor to show it to you. Uh, and I think the immune system leaks into the tumor much the same way. However, you know, that being said, these tumors, and I, and I hate to personify them, but they spend a lot of energy avoiding the immune response, even though they're in the brain. And uh, they take a veil of a lot of mechanisms that the brain has for not just keeping things out at the blood-brain barrier level, but for essentially reducing the numbers of T-cells systemically, trapping those T-cells in other immunologic compartments where they can't get to the brain. Um, you know, when you think about drugs like fingolimid for MS, that works by trapping T-cells in the lymphoid organs so they can't get to the brain. That is what tumors are actually doing. They're acting like fingolimid, they're, and they're doing things to limit the number of T-cells, the function of T-cells. So even those cells that get there are, are pretty ineffective. Uh, and, and I think of it as a chess match with these cancers because there are quite a few moves ahead of us. Uh, and we're trying to catch up, but they have thought of a lot of these things over, you know, however many thousands of years of evolution. And we're just figuring out all the things that these tumors, particularly in the brain, are actually able to do to shut us down. So uh, I don't think the immune system is is without access. I think it's distinct. It's an immunology distinct environment. And there's people like Jonathan Kipnis and other groups that have done fantastic work to really explain to us the the kind of tendencies, proclivities, nuances of immune responses in the brain, how antigen presentation happens. And the more we look into those literatures and really take those things into account as we design therapies and understand that those therapies need to be different in the brain, I think the better off we will be. So, Well, kind of, I think that's a good place to wrap up this part. You know, typically we always try to ask one more question uh, of every guest, something kind of fun about you personally. So we're going to probe your brain in a different way here. When not being an MD, PhD, or if you had free time, if you don't have any, what would you do in your non-science, non-medicine time, or do you do in your non-science medicine time as your is your main thing? Yeah, so I'm a big food, wine, bourbon aficionado of sorts. Uh, I'm actually a level three sommelier, 
Uh, and uh, so that answers it. That answer is easy. Uh, really enjoy, uh, you know, good friends with a lot of the restaurant owners where, where we live and uh, really enjoy that scene and have a pretty extensive wine and bourbon collections. So I guess the short answer is when I have free time, I'm drinking that time away. I uh, I don't know. But uh, but no, really, that that's kind of uh, where I spend a lot of my spare time and really enjoy. I got the follow up then, since I was also used <laughs> to be down in your area of the woods. What's your favorite uh, restaurant in the Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh area? I have to be very careful because the owners of numbers of those restaurants are friends of mine. So I'm going to take the uh, the cheap seats out of this and just say, you know, well, it really depends on my mood. <laughs> All right. Uh, but some of uh, your favorite for people. Some who of my favorite. How about some of my favorites? Uh, so I think uh, Graham and Brad Weddington do a fantastic job at Nana Steak. Uh, Jimmy Kim with Cucciolo. Michael Lee is a is a restaurant empire down there. All the M restaurants, M Sushi, M Coco, M Tempura. Uh, those are those are definitely some of the kind of uh, of of the most national acclaim. The M restaurants are are particularly excellent. But uh, there's actually Durham is really shockingly becoming like a foodie destination for the southeastern United States. So I, I would have to say there are fant- there's a ton of fantastic restaurants there. So yeah. I, I still hearken back to the Google Hoff for brunch. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Well, well, you definitely are a person to go have a glass of wine with then. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, too bad like we're that. not in person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's too, oh, man, that would have been nice. Wouldn't have. <laughs> well, if you're ever in Europe on a wine tour, let me know. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. This was a very interesting conversation. Uh, Jason, I don't know what you think, but I learned a lot. Uh, it was fascinating. I I had personal interest in this one for my family, so it's interesting to listen to. Well, hope, hopefully, I was able to provide you some modicum of comfort that we're at least on the right track. Indeed, absolutely. So, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Peter Fetchy from Duke University. Thank you for joining us uh, and at the Immunology Podcast. And well, all the best. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com where you can get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.